Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. The greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. The Penile Rehabilitation Program was created by Melissa at Restorative Sexual Health. This is an online program to assist turning software into hardware without leaving your home. This program was designed for people who live in areas where access to health professionals in this area is not available, or for those who are just too busy to attend consults, or even for those who just feel more comfortable learning at home with online learning and consultations online. For more information about this program, please go to www.rshealth.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health, so prost to you. November 11th. 11 a.m. 60 seconds kids watch on the wall in the pub in the tab in the cars we remember and wonder what should we feel for a minute we hold it hello welcome to the penis project podcast today we're talking to proctor now proctor is a very interesting case he had his prostate removed by robotic surgery in december 2018 and i saw him for his penile recovery and rehabilitation and then he developed some quite serious pelvic pain. And then we had Dr. Joe come in and perform her magic. So <laughs> we're going to talk to Proctor today about that. And also there's a bit of a background history as well. So here we go. Let's go. So Proctor, can you tell us about what was going on about 30 years ago? My original notes say something like you had a spontaneous testicular Torsion yep, injury. That is true. So when I was 18, 19, um, I had a couple of torsions that sort of self-resolved, so I didn't get surgery immediately, and then eventually ended up having um, a fixation, which is the sort of standard treatment for torsion. So they basically stitch your testicle to the wall of the scrotum. Is that so um, that it stops twisting? Yeah, exactly, to stop it twisting. So anyone yeah, who's yeah. listening, a torsion of the testy is a twisted testicle and it's actually yeah. quite dangerous and it can become gangrenous and you can lose your testicle and it usually happens to young men. Yes. So how old were you at the time? Uh, about 19, which yeah. is quite late usually. That is, is sort of younger in life. Do you remember so how you actually did that particular <laughs> action, Proctor? Um, well, I was actually travelled, been travelling around for a university open day at the other end of the country with a girlfriend at the time. 
uh-huh. and we'd been a little bit frisky on the train, and <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was sort of wearing boxer shorts, which is a bit of a no-no if, if you're at risk from torsions. And then we're walking around London and just developed this sort of really acute testicular pain. Oh. Um, and then yeah, it sort of went from there. So, so she was a bit twisty with them when she was getting excited. A by bit, the sounds. A bit twisty, yes, yeah. A bit twisty. <laughs> you know when you said before, and I was um, I had. Fixation. I was thought you were going to say you were fixated on your testicles, not that you had surgical. Well, I think fixation. I was for a while, but yes. <laughs> I think all 18, 19 year old boys yeah, exactly. may have that, you know, temporary ailment. Yep. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, and then, yeah, after that, uh, that was a standard treatment, everything recovered from that. But then I had these sort of bouts of testicular pain and was often referred back to the hospitals. And what tends to happen is you'd swell up, you'd be in pain, you sit in A&E for three hours because you're not really that an important case. Mm. And then by the time you're actually seen by any sort of medical personnel, you've, it's all resolved and you're all good again and they look at you and kind of wonder why you're there, give you some painkillers and send you home. And this, this kind of went on for years and I'd had ultrasounds and things and they couldn't find anything wrong. Now, retrospectively, you know, it kind of makes sense that it's possibly related to the whole pelvic pain thing because I've noticed now that I'm more aware of the pelvic pain um, there is definitely a link between when I'm getting testicular pain and, and have pelvic pain. So given that we've um, chosen the name Proctor for you yeah. today, Proctor, there's a few things that we really need to talk about that we haven't talked about in any of our previous podcasts and that's pain in the perineal area or the private parts, as Peter Dornan would say, the shameful. So it's often difficult and embarrassing to even have these conversations. But clearly from the age of 18, 19 to now you're 51, yep. there's, this has been in your life. So we know that about one in six men actually will suffer from chronic pelvic pain or persistent pelvic pain. But I'm gathering from what I know, because it's only been very recently recognised that a lot of the time you would have been met with quite a lot of disbelief or uh yeah yeah tell us about i think it's it's a case of if there's nothing there to see um then people don't know what to do or where to go and i mean this is a common experience with women who have you know sort of pelvic brain problems and and sort of gynae pain issues that they go through a multitude of doctors who don't really know what to do and it's a similar kind of experience so by the time you, you go and you're attended by a medical doctor, everything's resolved, everything's settled down and there's nothing really there to see. So were you feeling a bit <coughs> like a hypochondriac when you were turning up and then nothing was happening? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's, it's more frustrating than anything else. I mean, I knew I was in pain. Yeah. Um, it's just trying to convey to someone what brought on that pain and, and um, where it was and, you know. So during the period of time between when you were 19 and then you had your prostate out, yep. did you have intermittent pain that whole time and was there yes. pain with it? Yeah, it kind of come and go. It was a sort of regular kind of would experience discomfort, some sort of discomfort. Mm-hmm. And, and usually that's just fixed by sort of, you know, having a bit of a jiggle, adjusting everything and it, everything would be good. But then periodically I would get bouts of quite severe pain and I'd either take painkillers and then later on I was sort of put on anti-inflammatories, which kind of worked a bit better. Okay. And Proctor, uh, so. let's get quite specific. Where was this pain? In my testicles. Okay. Um, yeah, so it was often on the, the right-hand side, um, which is, uh, well, I don't know if that's in all men, but it's the testicle that hangs lower. Um, and and it's it literally feels sometimes like someone sort of reaching inside and kind of gripping and, you know, sort of squeezing your testicle from the inside a bit. It's, it's a bit like that, so it's not particularly comfortable. Oh. So. Did you have any... 
other symptoms like affecting your bladder or bowel function associated with these episodes? Nope. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't until so. after the radical prostatectomy that those things evolved. Yes, that's right, yeah. So and let's fast track yeah. to those. You just, sorry, one quick question before. When you were younger, did, did you get pain, did you notice pain with erection or orgasm or no, just random? No, not really. Okay. Yeah, no, no, it was just right. random and yeah. Okay. So. You go. So let's move on to your radical prostatectomy. So can you just tell us a little bit about your PSA experience? Because sometimes when there's chronic pelvic pain, the PSA yeah. actually rises and that can also of course, be a symptom of prostate cancer. Yeah. So was that ever difficult to track? Well, I'm a bit of an unusual case. So my prostate cancer was picked up by accident because I had a little bit of dysuria. So I was couldn't empty my bladder properly and there's a little bit of dribbling there. Um, and I went to the GP and I was fortunate that my GP still did digital rectal exams, which a lot of GPs have stopped doing and it's a bad thing. Um, so I had perfectly normal PSA. I've got no family history of prostate cancer. And if it wasn't for a diligent GP, it would never have been picked up. Good on him. So Yeah, good on him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, if your GP refuses, find another GP because it's, it's important. And the PSA, I think it's 15% of men with prostate cancer don't ever have an elevation with their PSA. And that's in my so. family as well, actually. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so that, yeah, that was kind of how mine, mine got picked up. So it was kind of almost incidental. Do you remember after you had the biopsy, how you responded? Was there much pain? It was quite uncomfortable. So I had the transperineal biopsy. So anyone that's not familiar, there's two ways of doing it. One is you go through the rectum, and, and then they go through the rectum and, and sort of sample the biopsy. The, the new fangled way of doing it, a clever way of doing it, is that they go in through the perineum and they use like a 3D model based on your MRI and um, they, they form like a computerised model of your prostate and then put this grid on your perineum and then make multiple passes through this grid. So it's very, very targeted And the other biopsy. reason they, they changed was because there's less risk of infection yes. when you're not going yeah, through an anus. Exactly. Yeah. You know, obviously it's less, much yeah. less risk of infection, yeah. which is always a good thing. Yeah. But it's like, it is a bit like having, you know, kind of ultra acupuncture of your perineum. Mm. So I think my, my wife was looking afterwards because you could see like these individual sort of pin marks and things right. like that. Yeah. And there was something like 24 different needle marks that she could identify through your perineum. So it does take quite a hammering. Mm. And were you sore for very brief. long? It, certainly for a couple of days afterwards, I was, you know, it was quite uncomfortable. Now there was, I'm um, just looking at your notes and there was something else you noticed that happened after the biopsy, which I don't think we've talked about on the podcast before. And I have been meaning to bring up, there was a change in your morning erections, wasn't there after the biopsy? You might not remember that. I can't remember to be honest. You yeah, told, yeah, yeah. You told me the first time I saw you way back then in 2018, that what you had, when I asked you about spontaneous erection, you said yeah. that had changed and you weren't having as much morning, often we weren't having morning wood because of... Ah, um, I lost uh, my morning glory. You did. And I hear that often. Yeah. And it does come back, but yeah. I think it's important for other guys to know that if they've just had a biopsy or sometimes a few biopsies yeah. that they can lose yeah. um, some of their erectile function, you know, for a period yeah. of time after the biopsy. Because I, I, I don't know, but I would imagine if you're making that many passes through the perineum into the, the prostate, the prostate, the prostate surrounded by nerves exactly. there must be a little bit of incidental nerve damage or you know mm. bruising and do you also remember 
after the um, biopsy about the ejaculate. A lot of guys tell me they're really shocked at what the ejaculate Yeah, yeah. It, you end up with, with sort of blood in your ejaculate. So you end up with a pink ejaculate, yes. which is a bit disconcerting if it's never happened before. Yeah, so it's nice um, for guys so to pa- take yeah, note of that. don't worry. <laughs> yeah, and it, it doesn't hurt. There's no sort of pain involved with it. It's just the fact that there is some sort of, it is blood stained. Mm. So, yeah. Okay. So let's move on to the mm. radical prostatectomy. Did you have it open or robotically? I have robotic. Yeah, I was quite lucky that uh, so I was in the public system at Fiona Stanley and was one of the early patients on their Da Vinci robot. So and how did all that go? <clears throat> so the operation was really good. Everything went really well. Uh, you go home the next day and I went home as planned. Um, and I was home for three weeks and everything was sort of settling down nicely. And so I had my operation on the 3rd of December. And then I think it was on the 27th of December. Um, I had night chills. Um, and thought, oh, this is a, a bit worrying. And I went off to see my GP the following day, had an urgent appointment. Um, the GP fortunately had done some surgical training and said, oh, no, you need to go back to the hospital. This could be what's known as a collection. Okay. So I went into A&E at Fiona Stanley with the GP referral letter. Um, almost got sent home by a triage nurse that sort of overstepped the mark. Mm. which I was not too happy about. Um, But fortunately, I got seen. And again, which seems to be typical of my story, it was everything was sort of dismissed. Oh, no, you're probably fine. You just need some antibiotics and all this kind of thing. And lo and behold, when they did eventually do a CAT scan, they found I had a collection. So what? So your GP was right. Mm-hmm. The GP was spot on. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah, he was right God, on the mark. Shout out to your GP. Mm, I know. I know. <laughs> so this is actually two different ones at the same surgery. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm great lucky. Yeah, good, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what had happened was that where they'd connected, they sort of rebuilt the the wall of the bladder a bit. And where the um, urethra had been connected back up to the bladder, there was a, a little bit of dead or necrotic tissue and it hadn't kind of healed properly to the bladder. So basically what was ha- happening was there was a bit of urine leaking out into my abdomen. At the anastomosis. Uh, yeah, that's the one, yes. Yep. Yeah, if you get your mouth around it. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was happening. And they, they found this collection of fluid in my abdomen. And then on top of that as well, I also had a urinary infection that I developed um, which was why I was getting the temperatures. So I basically had early peritonitis um, and then spent a few days in hospital and another five weeks um, catheterized. So after anyone that's not familiar, after your, your uh, prostatectomy, they usually catheterize you for about 10 days and then the catheter is removed and, and you sort of get used to so it. So you had it for so, 10 days, then yep. you would have um, had it removed for about a week and a half yep. and then you developed the anastomotic leak. Yep. And the collection, and then you recatheterized for five, five weeks. long yeah, weeks. Exactly, yeah. So basically, they were, they were trying to take the pressure off the edge of the bladder and allow that sort of tissue to yeah, heal properly. But what did the pressure so. feel like on the end of your penis, as the, where the catheter came out after five weeks? I, do you know, it's it's kind of weird. It was horrible to start with, and then you just get used to it. Right. You know, it just it becomes quite familiar. The the worst thing with with being catheterized is. is I got catheterized while I was conscious, which mm-hmm. I was I was pretty freaked out about, and that was you know it's not the most comfortable thing to happen. Mm. Um, but you you kind of get used to the catheter, and you get into that routine of dealing with a catheter and everything that you have to do while the catheter's in. It is uncomfortable though, and you, and you're kind of restricted on what you can do. So it then meant a lot of the sort of post 
um, operative recovery that you're, you're encouraged to do, I couldn't do because you obviously you can't move around that much. No, and you I, couldn't you, use I a pump, of, I remember. Yeah, initially. that's right, yeah, yeah. Mm. And you sort of waddle up to the end of the drive and then mm. with, with holding your bag and everything with your bag strapped to your leg. And you, you ended up in, so. um, developing <coughs> Peroni's disease as well, didn't I did. you, after yeah, the surgery, yeah. which, you know, wouldn't have helped yeah. the fact that you couldn't start rehab until quite late. Yes, yeah. yeah. So Peroni's disease, what is, how did that present for you? In case someone's listening for the so, first time and has no idea what yeah. Peroni's disease is. So I think at the extreme end, um, and, and Joe has sent me some lovely pictures, um, <laughs> it, it, you can get like a curvature of the penis. But for a lot of men, it's it's not like a, a real curvature. For me, it was like a sort of bulge on one side of the penis. So when you have an erection, it's it's not sort of linear all the way up. It was just like this sort of almost like a swelling on one side of the penis, <coughs> which was a little bit disconcerting yeah, as well. Yeah. So you're kind of like, what's So is any on? change to shape that bothers you that wasn't there before or function, which... Um, um, so initially before you started treating me, Jay, there yeah. was, it was a little bit uncomfortable. So I was getting a little bit of discomfort and sometimes a little bit of pain when I got an erection mm. um, around where that, where that sort of extra swelling was. Um, but then, Joe, you used... The ultrasound. Um, that's the one, yeah. yeah that the therapeutic was, yeah, ultrasound. Yeah, yeah. How did it feel so. to receive that, do you remember? It's, it's, it's a little bit confronting to start with, you know, when you're, you're sort of... Because um, the, the ultrasound is applied directly to the, the edge of the penis, you know, to the side of the penis. So, but, no, it's, you know, it's like everything else. You kind of get used to it. So, And I think after any man that's been through a lot of these things, your barriers come down and, and it's just like, oh, well, here we go again. Yeah. Um, <coughs> you know, so, yeah, people, that's right, yeah. yeah. A lot of so. people around <coughs> are doing stuff. And so we actually did a um, an ultrasound of it and you did have a thickening there yeah. and then we sent you to Joe and then afterwards when we did the post-ultrasound, um, it had gone a lot, yeah. hadn't it? It has settled down a lot, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that was good. good. And during that time, did that aggravate your your um your pelvic pain at all no, not directly mm-hmm. that i know of but it, everything kind of happens about the same time so it's kind of hard to say yeah so if we think about <coughs> the post-op recovery in terms of you had the catheterization for that extra time things like normally guys after radical prostatectomy have quite severe urinary incontinence how was all that for you I did have a fair bit of incontinence, yeah. Especially having, I think, having had the catheter back in for the extra five weeks as well. Did it take long to improve? Uh, Yeah, it was probably uh, fairly average from what I've read. Um, But you hear some people who, you know, quite quickly um, reduced to nothing more than the occasional sort of dribble. And that took me a bit longer than that to sort of... um, How is it these days, the continence control? Good. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a mixed good. No, there. no, no. It's, it's, there are still some things where I do leak a little bit. So, I, I mean, I do tend to wear a shield if I'm going out shopping or something like that. Protective shield is the smallest type of pad, yeah. like a liner. Yes, yep. basically, yes, yeah, like a liner. Yeah, yeah. So, um, just before we get into the pelvic pain in more detail, because I'm going to let Joe use that a special name she's got for that. I'd never heard of it until Joe saw you. But um, mm. just, I saw you at in November, the year after you'd had the surgery again, and you had what you referred to as, and I'd forgotten until I looked at your notes, wild type erections. Tell me about those. (laughs) That's my new terminology. I loved it. Yeah, when you have a sort of um, an erection without any kind of stimulation. So, you know, when you you wake up in the night and then you've got a bit of an erection, 
Mm. Um, and that's a bit of a, well, when you've had prostatic surgery and that happens, it's a little bit of a celebratory event. Yeah. And uh, so now three <coughs> years down the track, do your erections work? They work pretty well just with tablets from what I remember. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah they do. <coughs> so it's actually weird because I noticed that the sort of wild type erections more, I don't notice them so much now. I don't know whether it happens or mm-hmm. not. You know, I'm just, maybe it's not waking me up or something like that. I'm less aware of it. Yeah, you're probably just less um, excited now. Yeah, yeah. But I do, I have found that you don't get the, the sort of morning glory type erections. I don't very rarely wake up with an erection, which is something that wasn't uncommon before all my surgery and everything. Wasn't uncommon? Wasn't uncommon. No, yeah. you, you know, it was, it was you fairly regularly, especially if your bladder's full and things like that, you know, you wake up with a bit of an erection in the morning and that, even if my bladder's full, I don't often find that anymore. Mm. But so. Sorry, Joe. The, the <laughs> wild type erections, now I've written in my notes yeah. that it was more like a hard flaccid syndrome type thing where you would get these erections without wanting them that wouldn't go down. I did have that, that as were an painful. issue as well. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you get this kind of, it's... It's not like a true erection. It's like a sort of a, a sort of thickening and a rubbery sensation in your penis. So it's not like a proper erection. It's it's like it's a bit filled and it sort of thickens up a bit. And that is uncomfortable. That can be uncomfortable too. So did that ever happen before your radical prostatectomy? No. No. Okay. No, no not so I remember. what we're thinking here is, generally speaking, that you had in the background a an original injury, the yeah. twisted tor- 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 torsion twisties. Yeah. Twisties, I just called it. Yeah, I had twisties. Yeah, twisties. (laughs) Twisties for testicles. Twisties for testicles. Twisty testicles. Then in my uh, appraisal of everything and when Melissa sent you to me, I actually found that you had a very tight pelvic floor. Yes. And this can lead to men having reduced erections, penile pain, incomplete emptying or difficult to start the urine or bladder flow or even the bowel motion. So... In the background, if you're someone who has a tight pelvic floor or a hypertonic pelvic floor and then you go and have an, a radical prostatectomy, most of my patients actually have more pain. They get something called pudendal neuralgia. Yeah. And this can also be a bit dependent on the level of cancer and the extent to which the surgeon has to um, remove tissues. Uh, so after a whole year, I'm curious as to whether or not you found – when you came to see Melissa and then me afterwards, whether or not that came on associated with the improvement in erectile function because I'm just thinking it might have been part of the nerve recovery. I think it probably was. Mm. It's hard hard to sort of remember the sequence of everything, but I think it was definitely part of it. And and that sort of hard flaccid thing definitely seemed to be associated with the pelvic pain. Yeah. The other um, thing you, you so told me, sorry, was that you got this creepy crawly pain in your bladder at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And that? I still get that. Yeah, mm. I'm still getting that at the moment. So you get this sort of weird sensation and it's almost like somebody's kind of tickling your bladder, for, mm. but from the inside. <clears throat> um, and Or you, you get these sort of waves, this sort of sensation, like a wave moving around inside you, which is disconcerting it's not painful or anything and that's the pudendal nerve again because it supplies the bowel bladder and sexual function Uh, another thing i'd like to bring up is those pains you would feel in the middle of the night oh yeah something (laughs) we called proctalgia fujax hence proctor your name today (laughs) tell us about what that was all about for you yeah that that's none too pleasant so what tends to happen is you go to bed or you're sort of relaxing and you get this this kind of weird rectal pain and it feels like you're kind of gripping really tightly aside like you're trying to squeeze your buttocks in really tight and then but it doesn't let go 
Um, and, and it's also, it's, it's a bit like being severely constipated, even though you, you might have been to the toilet perfectly normally the day before. So you often tend to go try and go to the toilet because you think, oh, I must need to go to the toilet. Nothing happens. And, and this pain just doesn't sort of go away. Um, and it, it's hard to describe, but it, it's literally like something, some, someone's rammed something up your bottom. Um, and it's, it's really nasty. Rather uncomfortable. It's really nasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. It's, 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 it's a sort of barge pole experience. Um, and it's often so, in the middle of the night when patients, yeah, people it, are asleep. Especially initially, it, it, I found it was always within probably an hour or so of going to bed. So you go to bed, you relax, you're starting to kind of drop off and then this pain comes on and then it, it, it resolves itself but it can be anywhere from an hour to you know a few hours before it sort of goes away. As time's gone on, I found it happening more at different times of day as well. Really? <clears throat> so, you know, I've had it at work, um, especially towards the end of the day. Um, but it's usually... It's usually at times when you've been running around or you've been doing some sort of activity <coughs> and then you've relaxed. Okay. So you might just be sitting in a chair in the evening or something like that, you know, and you're watching the telly or something. So this is the pelvic floor going to cramp everybody. It's just yep. um, there's the rectal or puborectalis muscle and pubococcygeus that are basically super sensitised in someone who has a tight pelvic floor and it's really interesting that it happens at rest and we know that potentially people are dreaming at the time or they're having a stressful period in their life or their muscles are fatigued for a range of physical things or stressful things. So it's um, very under-recognised, this problem. Mm. So is it the same, Joe, as when, you know, you're laying in bed and you get like a calf muscle cramp? Yep, absolutely. Wow. Just of the pelvic floor. But during my yoga um, teaching and experience, we know that the pelvic floor is the kunda or the bowl of the pelvis that holds a lot of our emotion and, and as the Eastern medicines would say, our sexual tension, our relationship energies and um, then there's a muscle called the uh, piriformis and then the iliopsoas that are all associated with um, the genitofemoral nerve and the pudendal nerve supplying blood flow. So if people are under tension in their general lifestyle, these muscles are thought to wind up and then grip onto that pelvic floor mm. at times at rest. It's um, mm. often alleviated through Melissa's prescription of diazepam suppositories. Or Valium. Or, yes, which is better known as Valium or in the old days, mother's helpers. Um, but yeah, so I prescribed you some um, yep. diazepam. That oh, they're wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to be really careful with diazepam because it is um, a benzodiazepine yep. and it is highly addictive, but it is an amazing muscle relaxant. So if you use it intermittently for severe pain like that, then tell us how that went and what you had to do with it. So it comes in suppository form, which yep. goes in your bum. So you have to get it from a compounding chemist because it's not something you can easily get. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, like Melissa said, it's a suppository, so you've got to insert it up your bottom, um, which I have had medicines like that before, so it wasn't, you know, mm. too confronting or anything. So, um, and... How quickly does it work? Half an hour probably. Yeah, so you, you can be in extreme pain yeah. and then you put that in yeah. and half an hour later yeah. and then you can go back to sleep, yeah. I'm assuming. Uh, worst case scenario, I've had to double dose before. Yeah. Um, What's your recommendation so for how many times a patient might use it? Is it just like... I just always tell people never to use any kind of benzodiazepine for longer than three days in a row just yeah. because of the risk of... Um, of yeah. But of see, this is, this is kind of a... Um, I don't know how it's meant to be used, but I, I use it as like an ad hoc kind of therapy. Yes, so I only do good. it when I get the, the pain. I don't use it 
to prevent Routine. the pain or anything like that. Don't use it routinely. Which is perfect. And yeah. that's exactly yeah. how you should use yeah. it. It should be used as yeah. an analgesia in extreme yeah. pain, not just rant, not yeah. daily. But just as a warning to anyone that does, you know, has to use this therapy, that what goes in must come out. <laughs> um, so, so once you've absorbed the drug, the kind of wax base that it's in then has to come out and... You get a little gulp. I've, I've had one or two near misses with it. It's, it's pretty gross when it comes out. So yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's bringing up really bad pictures. Yeah. Um, no, so. <laughs> what about the, the preventative that you do take? So yeah. many of my patients who have chronic pelvic pain, I had the opportunity to work with Professor Thierry Van Kai from um, the Women's Health and Research Institute of Australia in Sydney about seven years ago. And he had every single one of his patients on low-dose amitriptyline or NDEP. Mm-hmm. And we actually – you'd had – some previous stressful times in your mid-twenties, I think. Yeah. And you'd actually tolerated that really well. Yes. So we um, prescribed it again. What happened with that? No, that's good. It's the, the amitriptyline is good. It kind of just takes the edge off um, the non-specific gain. So if you have chronic pain problems, anyone that has chronic pain problems, often what can happen is you start getting these non-specific pain issues in different parts of your body. And, and the amitriptyline really takes the edge off that. So, so. as Professor Van Kai um, taught me, it used to be used like 40 years ago for depression with a 100 milligram dosage yeah. per day. But starting off for pain, it's actually really useful just at five milligrams per day. So we put you on five milligrams. Well, Melissa did, not me. 20, yeah. uh, sorry, 10 milligrams we put you on, didn't we? Well, five with? initially and then we upped it and to 10. And then we upped yeah, it to yeah. 10. So yeah. that happy medium or sweet spot for you was 10? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that's something you've continued to take for over a year now. Yeah, I'm still taking it. Oh, it's a couple of years at least. I it's think, one of the so. most marvellous drugs. It's been around for like more than 40 years. So we've got a really good understanding of its side effects. I think the only thing that I hear people do complain of, but it's more at the high doses, is weight gain. But also yeah. it gives you really good quality sleep usually. Got any comments on either of those? I think initially you do you do notice it and, you, and if you sort of take it late in the evening, you sort of feel a bit drowsy the following morning. But it's such a low dose that once your body starts tolerating it and you get used to it, I don't have any real issues other, with mm. um, sort of sleep or anything. You know, like I don't feel drowsy the next day. The other really interesting so. thing, so amitriptyline is in the family of tricyclic antidepressants and it, at a dose of 10 milligrams, it's not really going to do anything from a depression point of view, but it is brilliant for nerve pain. Um, but the advice from the pain specialist, I went to a big talk um, last year actually from a pain specialist, very experienced pain specialist, and he had some really interesting advice about this drug and said that you really should take it at like seven or eight at night because it actually takes two to three hours ah. to get to its um, therapeutic dose. And so if you take it early in the evening, it will be well and truly gone by the time you have to get up in the morning to go to work. And if you, and yeah. whereas I think that the mistake a lot of people make is they might take it just before they go to bed yeah. and then they're not getting that, they're not actually getting its full therapeutic benefit until the middle of the night. If they had have taken it earlier, that would have been more successful and they also wouldn't have had that drowsy and it wouldn't be on board in the morning as much. Yeah. Yeah, so. I, should, I take mine at nine at night. Yeah. And like, as I say now, you, your body is such a low dose, your mm. body gets used it to it does. quite quick and you don't really notice it. Yeah. And I've just noticed from your notes as well that you were on Tadalafil or Cialis once every second day, but that was when I saw you in February. Do you still take that? Uh, no. no. Oh, sorry. Yes, you do. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I can't remember. Just to help with the ongoing penile um, rehabilitation. Uh, yes, yeah. So we're now two years plus yeah. post-radical prostatectomy. Where would you say your function is at compared to preoperatively? Um, pretty good. So it's, it takes a little bit more work to get an erection than it, it would have done originally. I, I certainly don't get that sort of 
uncomfortable, spontaneous erection that, that men sometimes get. Um, I have to work at it a little bit more than that. And there's definitely, you know, as every guy's told before they have prostatic surgery, there's a sort of change in penile length. Yeah, so what's happened there? Have you had used Melissa's ma- magic box of toys? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, apart from the, with the, just the Tadalafil, I've been quite lucky. That so you haven't had to use a vacuum pump? No. Oh, sorry, no, that's a lie. I did use a vacuum pump, yes. After my operation, I did. For a, a year or so, I was using a vacuum pump. And I'll be a little um, bit specific because our last podcast so. was all about penile length. It, would you say that you've noticed that there's any reduction um, persisting, like yes. we say, <laughs> one to four Quickly, centimeters. Yes. One to four centimeters by twelve yeah. months post-op is not unexpected yeah. compared to pre-operative levels. So, yeah. so um, I think there's definitely a shortening in my rectal length. Yeah, um, doesn't really make a lot of difference to your girth, I don't think. Okay. but the actual length is is definitely reduced by and by much. Yeah, oh, probably. A centimetre, two centimetres, yeah. I reckon. Yeah, and probably. that's what I think if without... You know I, what I guys reckon. are like, you know, we probably... I, I can well, remember the, the full 11 and a half inches that I used to have before. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, and now it's no, only... And now it's only three and a half. No, yeah. it's like, no. Yeah. But it's, it's, I reckon, probably one or two centimetres. And, and like, erections can be... You can get different length erections depending on how aroused you are and how you've aroused yourself and... It's interesting kind of that too, you so. say that though about <coughs> that guys, you know, that what that you think before. Yeah. And I've recently just started saying to guys that that say they're really worried about this penile length, go home and measure it yeah. before the surgery or the yeah. radiation. Yeah. Because often we think things are bigger and better than, than they were. And I think it's nice to later on, you know, a year or two down the track to be able to measure it again and go, you know what? I haven't lost as much as I thought yeah. I did. Yeah. I actually notice it more when your penis is flaccid. Yeah. Um, especially if I'm getting the pelvic pain and tight like that, that everything, sometimes I look like I've just got out of the ocean, yep. um, which is a bit sort of disconcerting. And, and, and I remember Melissa you telling me early on that, you know, if you didn't do the exercises, that's the sort of thing that can happen with people mm. chronically. That's right. Um, so let's just mention those exercises. So the, I taught you pelvic floor down training or relaxation. Yes. Now other physiotherapist, Beck Forster, actually for a little while there put you through a Pilates program and it completely flared you up. Yeah, and, and interestingly as well, I mean, the whole drive before you have prostatic surgery is kind of tightening up strength your, your and bladder strength, strength and strength and everything. So it's cool. all the opposite way. And I'd done um, what was actually a really good exercise program with... Um, the previous physio. Yeah, and with ECU as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they were doing as part of a research program yep. um, to try and improve your core strength before you sort of you go and have the operation and see if it improved your outcomes. So someone um, with a tight pelvic floor, it, it's bad. Yes. It, it actually flares you up. Yes. But, I mean, no, you're very few people, I think, un, you know, know about tight pelvic floors. Uh-huh. I know. And and I mean, I'm already referring people to you, Joe. I've got a friend <laughs> at the moment who may be going down the prostatic surgery yeah. route and I'm saying to come and see you. Yeah. But unless it's assessed beforehand, people don't know. And then, you know, the damage gets done mm. and it's too late. So. And the thing that you mentioned <coughs> earlier about the your GP doing the digital rectal examination. Yeah. So the only way we can actually feel the tone or the, I suppose, um, tightness of the pelvic floor is by doing that digital rectal examination. Yeah. We also have the capacity to do real-time ultrasound, the transperineal ultrasound or transabdominal where we see you reduce movement. But it is a really interesting topic because um, one of the things that, the Australian College of um, GPs now um, doesn't recommend is those DRE tests for prostate cancer patients. So that was because 
of the reluctance of men to go along and get testing in the first place. So it was considered that, okay, we know 10 to 15% of men don't get picked up yeah. um, by PSA, but we'd prefer 90% more men to come along if we don't have that test. And if there is any abnormalities in the PSA, it's the rate at which the PSA goes up from one test to the next or the velocity, that's the concern. But, you know, I do get patients all the time who get picked up by a very um, responsible and vigilant GP just like you. Um, It's also a bit of a concern because a lot of the younger doctors in training aren't actually taught this technique or they don't get practice at what's abnormal and normal. So, you know, I think it's it's a really important test. I've had the same concern from the yeah. from the urology consultants as well that yeah, yeah, like you say, if you don't get your finger up there and you're not regularly doing it, then you don't know. Don't know what you're feeling. Um, and, and like my GP who obviously, you know, uses this and it, and it, he's a sort of slightly older, more ex- you know, very experienced GP knew that the texture of the prostate felt abnormal. Mm. So it wasn't that it's massive, great prostate. And it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, it, it was simply that the texture of the prostate yep. felt abnormal. So it's bumpy, <coughs> it's got nodules. And yeah. that's a really important point too, Proctor. The size of the prostate is not related to whether or not someone has prostate cancer. Yeah. They're two completely different things. So benign prostate hyper, hyperplasia or prostate enlargement is a normal ageing process. 10% per decade it increases so it's almost one percent every year so 50 percent of men at 50 and 60 percent of men at 60 and so it goes on will have an enlarged prostate absolutely no relationship to psa readings or prostate cancer i know and you know if if the the gps don't do directs then people like me would slip through the system and Mm. i probably my outcome would certainly have been poorer yeah by the time anyone would have picked it up and, uh, you know, in the worst case scenario, it would have been too late and it would have metastasized. It was on the, uh, on the right on the wall of the prostate anyway. Yeah. And and the surgeon had said to me, look, where the situation where it was, this was at sort of 48. Um, by the time I was, I was sort of 65, 70. Yeah. Which is when most men are getting diagnosed. I could probably have been dead. Yeah, even... So, you know, yeah. yeah I, and the, who, there may never have been an elevation of my PSA. Mm. Yeah. I will actually just put one disclaimer in there. If you do have prostate infection or prostatitis, the prostate can swell. Yes. And so your PSA can actually... Go up. Go yeah. up associated yeah. with that. But we often see that swelling on our MRI and then the next time we check it, it's gone yeah. because it's responded to antibiotics. Yeah. However, only 3% of patients actually... Um, have true prostate infection yeah. um, when it comes to this pelvic pain scenario. So for many years it was called prostatitis and it's actually completely incorrect. So we have um, a new diagnostic criteria. It's called the NHIC um, prostatitis index and there's four different types. Uh, one is with bacterial presentation of prostate prostate infection one is non-bacterial and so it goes on and we'll put the reference for it but you actually had the most common which is type 3b non-bacterial prostatitis or actually a musculoskeletal origin so i actually did a lot of work on your back and Mm. a lot of yoga based approaches too to try and help relax all those muscles and body groups we talked about because that's the foundation of peter dawner's work as well the musculoskeletal involvement in pelvic pain and prostatitis yeah, I'm still using those exercises. Mm. Not not as routinely as I was. Yeah. But if I started getting bouts of pain, I go yeah. back to the yoga. Yeah. And it does definitely help. So what's it's, your yeah. pain like now? Right right at this moment? No. <laughs> In <laughs> oh, general. Yeah. Are you getting it as oh. often or less no, no, often? No, less less often. So how yeah. often would you get and this? It kind of comes in bouts as well. It's weird. You know, 
I, maybe it's related, it's sort of environmental and it's related to how stressed I am and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think that's very much the case. And I haven't seen <clears> you since February. Before that, I was seeing you twice weekly, then yeah. weekly, then fortnightly, and then monthly, and then three monthly. And in February, I said, you call me because I feel like you're maintaining it beautifully. Yeah. And I haven't seen you for a, a nine months. I miss you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say that we're pretty much... It's you know, good, managing you, it well and I the door's that, always open in case you run yeah. into... I think that the relevant point is that you've equipped me with everything to deal with what comes up okay. already. That's you know? both of us. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got the medications there and yeah. I've got the, the yoga exercises and things like that. I so thought, you've I given think me the I'm tools. I'm giving you the equipment for what comes up. And oh, okay, she's sorry, getting yeah, you yeah, the, right. go, the, the, <laughs> the equipment down. that goes down. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask what your urologist has thought of your pelvic pain along the way? Because I find that that's the biggest gap. The, they've noted it. But they haven't really been in that engaged about it. Or it's because it, they don't so. understand a lot. Yeah, of time. I mean, I've I actually had a, a like a, a minuscule elevation, but enough to send me back to re- being referred back to the hospital recently. The elevation um, of P- PSA. My PSA, yeah, yeah, PSA rise. Yeah. Yep. So I was completely undetectable, and I'd, I'd reached the threshold that the surgeon had set for being referred back to be monitored by the hospital. So. The first phone appointment I had, um, I mentioned about the pelvic pain and the registrar that I was speaking to, there's quite quickly kind of like a disclaimer, oh, well, your surgery was a couple of years ago, you know, any pain you had can't be related to surgery. Mm. So mm. there's no kind of recognition of any kind of ongoing... The thing is, urologists work with the plumbing yeah, and I work with the wiring to the plumbing. So it's the nerves yeah. to the plumbing and it's not really the role of urologists to fix the wiring to the plumbing, but... It's a very, um, I guess, poorly understood mm. area. And we will include the pelvic pudendal nerve map that Peter Dornan designed after following it in cadavers over seven years in Queensland because he was the first one to actually show that the S234 nerve is highly involved here. And we don't have an anatomical picture of it in all of our anatomy books. We don't even get taught it. And that's just because it's deep in the pelvis and not even MRIs have been able to detect it until recently. So this is the most important discussion because you had a background of pelvic pain persistent. Um, before the radical prostatectomy, it flared up and then you had pretty much every symptom you could possibly endure afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't want to leave anything out. Mm. Well, thank you so much for coming in today, Proctor. That was fantastic. And um, hopefully other guys who might have this unusual Proctalgia Fujax. I love that. It sounds sounds good, doesn't it? It does. It sounds so cool. And I'd like to say thank you very much to Twisty Proctor. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Really appreciate you coming in. Tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there all of my life. Hi, this is Dr. Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions, and so much feedback. And Melissa and I are absolutely thrilled about this. What we'd really love you to do, though, is to share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download using your favourite podcast app or subscribe to the penisproject.org. You'll get a weekly email and new releases, and this helps our podcast get more people. And if you write a review and subscribe as well, well, we'll get known more widely across the globe. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Women, just a mystery to me. Boy of my own now
fills me with pride to see him growing so fast into a man.